Blog Talk Radio. Everybody, unfortunately, we couldn't do this live on Monday due to a server error from Blog Talk Radio, but thankfully we are back up here today as this is the 14th Fire American Soccer Show. As we will now review the 1 1 draw between the United States and Wales in this World Cup group stage match. And uh, it was a very interesting one. You can say a tale of two halves. And joining me right now, of course, currently Pac-12 sports announcer and former Fox Soccer Channel presenter and play-by-play man Christian Miles. Of course, from World Soccer Talk, we have Robert Hay. And, of course, joining us a little bit later on, and hopefully he'll make it right now, Carter Krishnire from World Soccer Talk, both of them from World Soccer Talk as we get ready for this one. Uh, as we've already said, 1-1 one, one draw, Taylor two halves, and Christian, from your point of view, what did you make of this matchup between both the U.S. and Wales? Um, I thought an excellent opening 45, and then maybe a little bit left to be desired that second half. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it's kind of been the consensus here. Um, A lot of praise has been heaped on the U.S. for their display uh, in the first half. I take a little bit of issue with that. Uh, While the play was good between the boxes, I don't think the U.S. offered up enough inside the penalty areas and had some questionable moments defensively. And second half, I, I thought the change being on the big strong striker for Wales um, and pinning him up against it, that U.S. Central Defensive Partnership kind of allowed them to play a little bit more directly. Um, the U.S. didn't have an answer. I thought Rob Page got the best of Greg Berhalter in terms of in-game adjustments. The U.S. didn't have a response to that. Um, and, and as a result, you know, Wales – looking like the team that was probably going to go on and win it uh, in, in comparison to the U.S. So all in all, though, it's, it's not doom and gloom. The U.S. do have a point, but this is, you know, a point gain, but two points lost, moreover, and, and the U.S. really should have come out on, on the victorious end. Um, I would like to commend the Welsh. I thought they were brilliant. I thought they defended well, by and large, um, you know, Hearts of Lions and a team that was without its midfield general and Joe Allen. So a job well done to them and a tip of the hat to the Welsh. You know, I got to say, Robert, uh, and I do agree with, with uh, Christian absolutely about that. And uh, But on that first half, I mean, the U.S. was on fire. The U.S. was attacking. The U.S. was doing some wonderful things with the ball. They were just showing you why this young core is going to be dangerous for the years and years to come for the U.S. men's national team and for the U.S. program. I mean, what was about that first half that really excited you when taking on one of the top teams in the United Kingdom? Yeah, well, first, Daniel, great to be on with you. Great to be on with Christian, who I'm a huge fan of. Um, so always want to get that out of the way first. Um, <laughs> one, thing I, I did, one thing I did for this match was uh, I mixed it up a little bit, and I, um, I actually listened to the U.K. broadcast. Uh, I wanted to get their perspective as to what was going on because, um, you know, I just wanted to hear something different. And I'll tell you what, uh, it was about as depressing of a first-half broadcast that I've ever heard, Uh, you know, bemoaning, you know, this is the worst that we've seen Wales play and so on and so forth. And I think there's something to that. You know, I I put on Twitter at halftime, you know, I'm glad that the U.S. got a goal because there's no way Wales could play any worse than what we saw on the first half. I mean, this is a good, you know, good side. Uh, world-class quality players uh, when they're on, but they just showed no um, no real, you know, desire to bring the game to the U.S., and so that really played into the U.S.'s hands, and, you know, in terms of attacking, uh, you know, prowess, and it played to some of the U.S.'s strengths. I mean, obviously, Christian Pulisic was uh, very good in the first half, really controlling the ball and giving the Wales some problems, and then, you know, the way a goal was just, uh, you know, a great 
I mean, that really shows what this team can do when given space to perform. Um, and so I think what we saw in that first half was um, some of the, you know, some of the good that this U.S. team can do, how its interplay and how its speed can really cause problems for teams. But I think it would be, it would be remiss if we didn't highlight the fact that Wales just came out with a horrible game plan and came out really flat and allowed the U.S. to do that. And I, I think, you know, it sounds really conceited and full of myself to sit there and say, I really wish we would have gotten a second goal against, you know, our world-class, you know, European side. But, man, a second goal in that first half would have been really, really great as it turned out, you know, a 1-1 draw is what we got. Mm-hmm. And uh, Clark Krishnar, of course, is with us with World Soccer Talk, from World Soccer Talk, excuse me, and, you know, he's going to give a little more in-depth as well because of his knowledge of what's going on with the players from Wales and uh, that do play, the majority of the roster plays in the Premier League and, of course, uh, the Championship, Football Leagues 1 and 2, as well as welcome to Wrexham. But anyway, uh, Cardiff, <laughs> you know, when, when you saw that... <laughs> Rob McElhaney is not here, so we unfortunately don't have him. Um, but if I could ask you this, Cardick, uh, what made you think when that starting 11 was brought out from the Welsh manager, uh, did you feel that this was advantage USA right off the get-go, or did you think that this was going to be more of a challenge for the U.S.? Absolutely, I thought it was going to be advantage USA. Uh, I want to echo Robert's sentiments. It's great to be on the show with Christian, who I've been a, a huge fan of for many, many years, going back to the Fox Soccer Channel days. And it's great to be reunited with Robert, who uh, we've had a great partnership on these shows through the years, but haven't done one together in, uh, in a number of years. So thank you, Daniel, for bringing us all together. Um, when I saw Rob Page's lineup, I actually kind of said, okay, that's, Wales is conceding, and I got talked off the ledge by a couple of people who I know uh, – know British football pretty well, saying, well, he thinks that he can maybe get the U.S., who's a high-energy team, to run themselves out in the first half and then make the changes needed in the second half, which is kind of how the match played out. But I don't understand not starting Kiefer Moore from the get-go. He's such a unique player uh, in international football in terms of his, his, his height and mobility because he's big, he's strong, but he's also very mobile as a striker. Now you can drop uh, Bale a little deeper and maybe get him more touches. Uh, and then the decision to start Dan James over Brendan Johnson is who I would have started in that case um, was also controversial. But, yes, uh, Christian makes a very good point also about Joe Allen, who is the heart and soul of the Welsh team, as much as we talk about Gareth Bale. Uh, he's the engine uh, being injured and not being a big factor in this match. But I, I do think uh, it was advantage USA and the U.S., handled that first half really well and uh, probably should have gotten a second goal at some point. And, and uh, we know, uh, as both Christian and Robert have said, that Wales is of a certain standard, uh, both in qualifying and in the, in the uh, Nations League. Even though they got relegated from their group, they played uh, the Netherlands and Belgium uh, very tough in, in, in those matches. So, they're of a certain high standard, and you knew you were going to see a much better Wales, uh, irrespective of tactical changes in the second half. And when you have a team like that that you know can beat you on the rope, you've got to finish them off, and the U.S. just didn't do that. Sorry about that. Uh, my microphone was a little off there. Sorry about that, guys. As Christian, I was trying to say was, um, and I agree with Cardick and everyone else, that the uh, substitution uh, that brought in Kiefer Moore for Daniel James, I mean, um, you know, there was some good attacking uh, by the U.S. in that second half. But once again, that substitution really, really helped out. Wales deep into the second half before uh, that penalty that was awarded to Christian Bale was uh, uh, on target for the Welsh. Well, first of all, I, I, where are my manners? Karnik, pleasure to be on with you. been a fan of your stuff, and I really thought your commentary is always spot on and your observations. And, Robert, pleasure to be on with you as well. Um, yeah, it, like we were saying, I mean, that, that was a game changer. That was 
an in-game adjustment. And credit to Rob Page. His team not only changed it up a little bit more direct, but he also changed their intensity. Whatever the halftime team talk was said <laughs> should be bottled and saved for later. But we know that the Welsh are going to come play direct with a player like Kiefer Moore in there. He suits that style perfectly. The U.S. didn't have an answer for it, didn't cope for it. And, and you know, what? long stretches in that second half were outplayed. And I'd have to say that, you know, the Welsh were the better team. But for my my bone of contention here a lot with, with our, our media coverage and, and I'm hearing it, analysis is that for all of this great play, and, and it was good play for the U.S. in the first half, between the boxes, there was one shot on target in that game for the United States. And for me, it's got to be better than that. You know, and we're not talking, you know, all due respect to the Welsh, we're not talking about, you know, a top-tier program. Yes, they are on, in a golden generation and playing extremely well, and, and no disrespect to them, but, you know, it's not like we're playing the Three Lions or we're playing, you know, Belgium or, or you know, a top European side. And so I thought the U.S., you know, kind of were outwitted, and, and that, that a lot of that's on Greg Berhalter. Um, and, it, and also touching on a point that you were making about substitutions, you know, a lot of people clamoring for Gio Reyna when the U.S., you know, were, you know, in dire need of some creative inspiration um, for all of their play between the boxes. I thought Gio Reyna could have alleviated that and given them a little bit more incision, a little bit more quality and link play into the final third and, you know, a nose for goal himself. So I, I take issue with the fact that, yes, it, it's great what you do between the boxes, but, you know, we know what happens inside those boxes often are the decisive moments and are what decide games. And, and for me, the, the U.S. just wasn't good enough in that regard. And, um, you know, I, hopefully uh, that we'll see that alleviated up against an England side who, in my estimation, if we play like we did in that second half against the Welsh, we are in for big trouble because we will absolutely – get torn apart by this English side. And I just think it's got to be better. And, you know, we, ever in the lead-up and the build-up to this World Cup, ever, you know, much has been made about the number nine and, and the center forward and, you know, whether it's going to be Ferreira or Haji Wright or Josh Sargent or whoever's going to come in. And it's, it's really glaring to me that that lack of conviction in, in that final third is something that it's just problematic. And Robert, just to go on the substitutions in the second half, and I do agree with Christian for the sense that not so much about Gio Reyna, Gio Reyna coming in or not coming in. Um, outside of that, which I do agree he should have been in the match, without a doubt, as a substitute. But the lack of awareness and urgency from Greg Berhalter's substitution patterns really, really bothered me. And I'm going to go all the way back to the home World Cup qualifier back in Tennessee, in Nashville, Tennessee, where Greg Berhalter, the only sub he made was in that first half to sub out Serginho Dest for an injury and did not sub anybody into that match for a good 55, 60 minutes from the Dest injury till it was too late when Canada equalized in that qualifier at home in Nashville. Um, to me, Burhalter is lacking in awareness of when to sub and when not to sub. Yeah, it's, it was, it's interesting. And I, I feel like we've, or at least you've talked about this on your show throughout, and you know, qualification and, and I'm in agreement with it. His, the substitute patterns tend to be rather confusing, I think, or, or head scratching at times. Um, you know, I think it's important to touch on the Gio Reyna thing real quick. Um, it's hard for us to know how hurt he is. Obviously the player says he's 100% ready to go because almost any player will say they're 100% ready to go. Um, how ready to go he is, um, you know, I think that's a, a question. But if he's healthy or even close to healthy, I think, you know, as Christian said, you gotta you got to put him out there. But just the timing, I mean, looking at the substitution pattern, you have, you know, Rob Page who made the substitution at halftime to change the game. Obviously that was necessary um, and smart because they, they couldn't keep playing the way they were. But, you know, if you look at the first substitution, you know, Brendan Aronson coming on in the 66th minute, um, my math skills are very bad, but what, that's about 20 minutes of, of Wales having changed the game. And um, that's a, I mean, that's an eternity in soccer. And, you know, I think that knowing that, uh, as Casey Keller pointed out on, on the post game, you know, you have a number of players who are um, not necessarily getting uh, the time that they may want or coming back from injury. Um, you're perfectly justified in bringing on a quick substitution in, early in the second half uh, for any number of reasons. Um but the fact that it was kind of like you had a number of substitutions come on, you know, Yedlin in the 74th and, you know, Morris in the 88th and so on and so forth, uh, and Wright in the 73rd minute, um, it just kind of spoke to a little bit of tinkering 
uh, a little bit too late. And um, I think that's the disappointing thing is, you know, Greg Berhalter is going to be stuck with this idea of like, does he really know how to use his bench? And I, he didn't prove in this game that he didn't put those doubts to rest. Let's put it that way. No, he really didn't. And that's the one thing, Cardick, I think uh, was the advantage for Wales was that, as we all saw, uh, Berhalter, you know, basically late with his substitutions. You saw a tired U.S. team being taken advantage of. And, it w- I mean, let's also say it as well. I mean, you know, even the bookings to um, uh, to Tim Ream, that, you know, wasn't good. Uh, even the earlier bookings over to uh, Weston McKenney and uh, I believe also Tyler Adams. But I don't think – I think it was somebody else that got booked. But I thought Tyler yes, Adams got yes. a yellow card in that match. Dest, thank you, Sergio Dest. Uh, getting that earlier booking as well. I, I, to me, that really hampered the U.S. from doing anything you know, important from the goal being scored all the way to where Wales already made their substitution to start that second half. Did we lose Cardick? I guess we did. Now we have him back on. Uh, Cardick, yeah, did you hear what I said? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the match in Nashville against Canada last September because that, to me, was a prototypical match where the U.S. was pretty good in the first half. It was nil-nil. But then the first 15 minutes of the second half, Canada were the better team, and, that, and Kyle Lahren got a goal at the end of that 15-minute stretch, if I remember. Right? They came out at halftime. Herdman had made some tweaks within his team, and uh, Canada gets a goal, basically, and takes the lead. And Verhalter is then scrambling. And then there was a match in um, Honduras, uh, I think maybe in the same qualifying window, where uh, Verhalter got it right with his changes, but they came late, and we fell behind in the game. I can't remember if it was Honduras or El Salvador. Um, some of qualifying. Honduras. Now, but there was, yeah, it was Honduras, right. And, and so he then, makes, because he had five substitutions, makes a basically what we what you would call in hockey a line change, right? He makes he brings on the cavalry and is able to change the match. But again, that change those changes came late. And we've seen it repeatedly from him. And in this match, um, the US was getting battered. And sure, Wales didn't get a goal. Uh, but the US was getting battered from minutes forty five to sixty. Um, it was about as bad as it could be. Um, and there was no, not even a tweak within the setup of the 11 guys he had on the pitch. There wasn't a, a, a thought, well, maybe um, we bring one of, uh, one of the attacking players. You know, Josh Sargent can actually play a little deeper. He, he's very versatile. I've seen him do this at uh, Norwich because they have Timo Puki, who's an out-and-out number nine. So Sargent, unless they're playing in a two-striker formation, which they don't very often, plays in all sorts of different roles. So you could have even tweaked within that, that lineup. You could have maybe done something a little differently with the three-man midfield, uh, with McKinney struggling with the injury. Uh, but there was no change made. And um, Matt Turner bailed the U.S. out, flat out, right? He, he made a great save uh, and then um, did enough to put Kiefer Moore off on the, on the ensuing corner to where he missed the target on, on what was uh, basically a free header that was uh, – not picked up by the defenders, right? But the keeper did enough, in my estimation, just from watching uh, how, how he reacted. So um, this is a recurring theme, guys, and, and um, it's something that Burhalter um, has to get right because what we've seen with Burhalter is he either gets his, his, his starting 11 right, which we saw at times during qualifying, but then uh, there's some strange substitutions, or – he gets his starting 11 wrong, his tactics wrong from the get-go, and, it, and has to scramble and often does it late. So he, is not, he, as a consistent manager, has not been able to put in a 90-minute shift like you expect your players to do uh, at a high level in I don't know how long, maybe since the Gold Cup uh, last year. It, it's been that long. Yeah, it probably has been. And, and Christian, if I can go to you with this, you know, my my problem with Greg Berhalter has always been he's trying to fit players into a system where this is not a club team. You cannot force players to play a system who are not playing that same system anywhere or everywhere else around the world. You as a you as a national team head coach must 
play to the strengths of the players that you are inheriting so that they can work as a unit and do well. And, you know, outside of Christian Pulisic being that dangerous player to deliver a ball or to set up chances for his teammates, like he did for Timothy Weah, we'll get to that goal in a moment, you know, to me, this is a manager for the national team who's lucky enough that the board of directors at U.S. Soccer, forget about the presidential position. Cindy Parlacone, you know, whatever job she's doing, whatever it is, good for her. I don't care. But she doesn't have the nerve to go out and actually do the job to fire a manager the way that a president of the U.S. Soccer Federation or any FA should if their managers for the national team are not doing the job they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's, and that's, a, a, I think, a discussion for another time and, and as we find ourselves, in, you know, in the thick of this World Cup battle. And, 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 and Burhalter for me, is has failed. It's, it's his first test. I, I had to be quite frank. I, I'm very disappointed with the lack of response and that I, I don't know what, who else to put that on but him. Um, you know, and, and while there can be, you know, debates made about substitutions and such, the fact that, you know, it was flat and it, it was checkmate and there was no response to that. And, you know, we can beat a dead horse and such. But um, you know, the midfield need to be livened up. He brought on the likes of Jordan Morris because he wanted a little pace, a little more power, even though you've got a, a side in, in Wales that, you know, uh, match up well in that regard and you were looking at a U.S. team that it had gone flat in the midfield at that stretch of the game. You know, we were talking, you know, in the last quarter of an hour, um, and it was in, in crying out for creative inspiration, in my estimation, uh, as I thought Eunice Musa, you know, just kind of ran out of steam a little bit, and, and Aaron McKinney had to come off, so that left a, a little bit of a hole in terms of, you know, thrust and force, and it, it kind of affected the, the U.S. presence in the attacking half, and, uh, You've got to have an answer for that. You have to. And if anything we've seen throughout this World Cup, these in-game adjustments, you know, are, are proving to be massive uh, for a lot of these these teams here. And, you know, we saw it, um, you know, in, in previous games. And I think that that is something that, you know, is a major barometer for any manager. And I hopefully it won't be the case uh, against an England team that is going to be well up for this fight. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, it's got to be a heck of a lot better. Uh, while you want that same type of effort and its same productivity between the boxes and, and much you know, praise to the U.S. for that effort in the first half, but you know, decisive areas, decisive moments, the U.S. needs to have that conviction and we need to get that. And, you know, a lot of that falls on the manager. No, I, I agree. And let me just say this, Robert, um, to talk about that goal first from uh, the U.S., I thought Pulisic delivered a hell of a ball. I thought Tim Weah did an excellent job to stay onside, to be on the inside of his defender. And then when he got to the ball, nice quick poke, slotted it home, and 1-0 U.S. And I really thought that uh, we're going to see a big, big three-pointer for the U.S. until, of course... Uh, the moment that second half happened, we'll get to that in a moment. But still, though, Robert, great goal by Timmy Weah. And at the same time, how nice his father, the president of Liberia and the former uh, Ballon d'Or winner in George Weah, taking time away from his presidential duties for his country to watch his son play in the World Cup. That was amazing. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there, there are stories like that throughout every World, World Cup, and I'll start there. And that, that I, I love the pictures afterwards. I love that that story and the fact that, you know, obviously his father hasn't necessarily played at that, you know, at, the, at a World Cup. But, you know, having to be able to watch his son and score a goal is, is you know, that, th- those are the kind of heartwarming stories I wish we could see more of at this World Cup. But we won't go down that road right now, um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, mm. why we're not hearing those as much. Um, let's talk about the goal. So it's, I think that's, like I said earlier, it's a perfect combination of, of, you know, where the U.S. was able to play to its strengths kind of in the first half, you know, um, as was pointed out in the broadcast, really uh, Joe Rondon and, and a couple of, you know, the Wales defense was playing a little bit, you know, scattershot. And so when you have Christian Pulisic and you give him space like that, um, he can really um, excel. And I think that's where we saw the best of him there, you know, given a little bit of space and a defense that's a little bit on the back foot. Um you know, he was able to pick out that, that pass. And as we said with Timmy Way, I mean, he was having a, um, a heck of a time down that side of the field in the first half. I thought he was really playing well. 
And as you mentioned, Daniel, just getting into a great position to receive that pass um, really highlights what the U.S. can do well when given the time and space and the defense of this organization to, to do that. Um, the problem is, is that are they going to get that much time and space in the next match? Probably not, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but, um, you know, you're, it's not very often you're going to get golden opportunities like that. But it's good to see the U.S., and that's the, one of the reasons why I was really um, encouraged by the first half and hoping, like I said, for another goal is because, you know, they were playing well and playing to their strengths. And then, you know, I was hoping – I knew it wasn't going to last, so uh, it was good to see that one goal. Yeah, and Cardiff, uh, you know, for Wales, they get their goal off a penalty from Gareth Bale. Who else but Gareth Bale? Of course, mm. we saw that in the MLS Cup final for LAFC in second half stoppage time. Uh, uh, actually, actually, I should say second half uh, extra time stoppage time uh, to make it 3-3 against the Philadelphia Union and force the penalty kick shootout. But um, Walker Zimmerman, honestly, um, I, I know he was trying to defend Bale when he got the ball. Uh, I think his decision-making to go into a sliding tackle uh, was absolutely the wrong way to go because when you're going to take on Gareth Bale like that, you've got to face – you've got to really challenge him head-on, you know, head on, uh, keep your feet above and not go right down to the floor because you're going to put yourself in a big, big heap of trouble because you know Gareth Bale is a very big player who will change a match very, very quickly if you give him the opportunity. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I agree with that analysis, and he shouldn't have lost his feet when he did and, and how he did, and it was a clear penalty. But I think a, a key thing to consider is that uh, the U.S. had the action coming at them for so much of the second half. And uh, Wales were winning the 50-50 balls. And, the, and we talked about Berhalter not making the changes when he needed to make. That at that point, you were seeing a mentally fatigued mistake by Walker Zimmerman. A, a, a mistake based on that, uh, that he and Tim, Timmy Ream, his, his um, um, center back uh, partnership, that center back partnership, had had to clean up so much in the second half. After having not the do very much in the first half. And I think um, those sorts of mistakes happen because you're, men- you're mentally tired. Uh, they keep coming at you. You know Wales is desperate. They're throwing more and more forward. Uh, you've somehow gotten through that first wave. We talked about minutes 45 to 60 where Matt Turner made, made a great save. Wales made a couple, uh, had a couple of other really good opportunities. Verhalter took his time making a change to try and change the trajectory of, of the match and, and adjustment in midfield where Wales were winning every 50-50 ball. So I think this is partly uh, a result of the, the, the lack of tactical change from Verhalter, to be honest with you, yep. and the inability to relieve the pressure that the U.S. defenders were under that entire second half. Uh, Wales was going to get a goal one way or another, it felt like. that whole From minute 46 onward, it felt like that. And so it happened this way, unfortunately, for Walker Zimmerman. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, that's the thing right now, guys, is that um, my issue with Burhalter has always been his lack of vision when it comes to what's being played in front of him. It's not just forcing players into a system that, you know, for a national team is not supposed to happen. But when does he feel he needs to make the right substitutions at the right time, because once again, it's not just that, you know, this match was screaming for Gio Reyna. His evaluations, um, Christian, to say that Jordan Morris brings uh, more speed into the game when he was subbed in that late into the match, which I completely disagree with. Jordan Morris, to me, granted, he's able to run with the ball very well. He's able to get into spaces very well, but I mean... To be honest with you, he's better moving without the ball, and at the same time, he's better being a target striker than actually using his speed with the ball to create a chance. He's a better target striker. He's a better movement without the ball guy to get that moment to score the goal, whether it's on the Sounders or whether it's on the men's national team, because yes... That moment is more for Reyna, who has the speed and able to attack when you need that second goal to retake the lead. Yeah, I think what Berhalter was thinking was he was 
as Wales was going to go and pressing for, for the winner late on, bringing on a player like Jordan Morris would uh, allow the U.S. to counterattack with pace and power, and that's where we know that, you know, Jordan Morris is at his best, is when he's, you know, in transition, facing up and running at defenders and trying to play attack space. And I think that was his rationale. Um, and I can see what he's doing that. But, you know, aside from those moments, he's a player that struggles breaking down a low block. A lot of these U.S. players, I think, really struggle breaking down in a low block, particularly uh, Christian Pulisic, which is, you know, they made uh, a lot of his, a lot of critical points towards his play uh, has been tackled in overseas media. And one bone of contention I had as well with uh, the substitution pattern, the likes of Acosta coming on from Musa. Clearly Musa was tired. I thought he should have come off a little earlier. And that's where people get into this Gio Reno argument. You bring in, you know, Kellen Acosta to, to get some control, get a foothold in midfield when uh, the U.S. were being, you know, outplayed in that direct fashion. But that was the sub, I think, that, a lot of people were looking at it and scratching their heads and going, you know, okay, here we are. We're, you know, we're looking for three points. Um, Wales is up and at us right now, and, and he wanted to get a foothold of the game and, and bring in Costa to just kind of lock things down. I don't think it worked, and that's where we were outwitted. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with, you know, Kartik's point where, you know, you need to make a change. I mean, you know, it sounds cliche, but a plan B, whatever you want to call it, you have to be able to make those changes and adjust to the situation that's presented in front of you, and we didn't. That's flat out. No, and no, we did in a World Cup. In a World Cup, when you've got tight turnarounds, uh, you know, and you don't have a lot of time to work, and especially in this World Cup where there hasn't been much chance to really, you know, work with these players in the lead up to it and work on systems, um, it doesn't really suit the strengths of a, of a manager like Greg Borhalter. He's such a fan of the system and likes to have his players in camp for long durations. So yeah, I mean, uh, it was just I, a substitution pattern that I thought was mysterious. That I don't agree with, um, and the, the personnel. You know, implemented. Um, if Gio Reyna is not fit to go, then he should not be a part of the 18. Um, he's in the 18, so he is available for selection. Uh, so that's on the manager. If, if he's not fit and, you know, you're worried about fitness issues, then don't include him in your 18. So um, and that's where I have some issues with, with him and the way he's gone about his business. I'm not going to be doom and gloom on him. You know, he's, he's pushed a lot of the right buttons. I thought the 4-3-3 idea and, and from the get-go I, th- I thought he picked a good team i really did a, you know, a lot of eyebrows were raised with reem um i thought desk looked you know Jorginho desk you know great on the front foot but you know players were running at him and several times he had it crammed down his throat and he looked very uncomfortable shaky and, and of course of course i thought kind of cat was the catalyst to the uh first substitution our second substitution, rather, bringing on Yedlin. Death was on that yellow card. Uh, I'm trying to think ahead to the England game. So, yeah, there's there's some tweaks, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, the coaching staff is going to take a long, hard look at this video because there's a lot that they got wrong that they can get right just in terms of organization, in terms of a tactical standpoint. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, um, Robert, just to go on uh, a big moment, I thought, and obviously th- this can be said for football as you can also say for hockey. Know when to take a penalty at the right time, meaning, of course, a foul. <laughs> know when to take a foul at the right time when it's a smart foul or a smart uh, penalty because you're trying to prevent the opposition from gaining an advantage when you know that the uh, the numbers are not in favor for you. And Kellen Acosta, you know, look, he did what he had to do to save Matt Turner from being exposed when he ran 20 yards off of his line to defend the ball to try and kick away. And if Kellen Acosta does not pull his man down, and yes, he got booked for it, but as we say in the business, that's the right type of foul you want to do. And you know what? That's the yellow card you know that you can accept, the fans can accept, media can accept, and your head coach will accept you because, you know, you made a sacrifice to take a booking to save a goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a- absolutely a professional foul there, really smart play. Um, you know, and, and this is, like you mentioned, true in hockey and, and uh, most every sport is sometimes you just got to commit that foul. But you have to do it in a way that's smart. You know, you don't want to, like, pack somebody down and, you know, get yourself a red late in the match or, you know, miss. How many times have we seen a player try to commit a foul and just whiff completely? Um, so it's a little <laughs> bit harder than it looks. So credit to him to uh, for, you know, committing for having the wherewithal to sit there and, and look back and say, okay, here's what I need to do to prevent, you know, us from being in a really bad place and losing a point here. So uh, I think you're right to highlight that, and, and I know many others have as well. It's a good, smart play. Um, 
to uh, you know preserve that that tie. And you know, I, I think that's one of the benefits of having some of these players. You know, I, I know all of these players have had, uh, or pretty much all of these players have had a lot of, of actual soccer, professional soccer experience. But sometimes it, it helps to have, you know, some of that, um, you know, uh, some of that, you, you know, your high level experience and and very tight matches when all of the pressure's on you. And um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we're going to see. You know, that's good to see from this U.S. team. They're not. I know we're. I think the youngest or the second youngest roster, but it's, sometimes it's good to see that that veteran smarts come through. Clark, what would you say would be Wales's point of view in this match? I think we all agree with the U.S.'s end of things that this probably should have been a three-point win. This should have been at least 1-0 or 2-0 for the U.S. against Wales. But when you see the result for the Welsh, what do you think they're saying right now? Do you think they felt uh, that they deserve the point, uh, that they might have found a way to get three points out of this one? Do you think they deserve the loss in this? Yeah, so there's actually been in the British media a lot of talk about uh, the foul, the, the tactical foul, the professional foul that uh, Robert just spoke about regarding uh, Kellen Acosta, which I think was perfectly timed. You take the yellow card there, you do what he did. I, I don't have any problem with it. But there's been uh, some conversation in the British media, hey, that was really cynical, and uh, it, the U.S. stole a point by doing that. Well, I mean, I guess you could say that because – uh, potentially get, they'll get that shot off. There's, 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 I think, considering it's Gareth Bale, there's a better than 50-50 chance it goes in the back of the net and, and Wales wins. But beyond that, there's been some conversation about Rob Page and, and the selection and not just how uh, tactically the mistake of not starting Kiefer Moore from the beginning and not having, um, in my opinion, the mistake of not having Brennan Johnson in there from the beginning also, but the lack of intensity and that Wales had qualified with, with uh, a lot of spirit and cohesion and had, even though they had lost those matches, I mentioned in the uh, UEFA Nations League to, to the Dutch and to the Belgian uh, side, you know, to elite sides in world football, that they had played with this spirit and this fight throughout those matches and that they came into a match against the United States who are, uh, are, are respected and, and are seen as a, a side that's dangerous that they, they played so scared um, in their first World Cup since 1958. So, uh, and this, remember, this is a Welsh side that has gotten out of the group stage in the last two Euros. They got to the semifinals of Euro 2016. Uh, so they're an experienced side at the international level, but they haven't been in a World Cup before. So there's a lot of analysis about that and thinking, okay, um, they could have won the match, but they'll take the point and move on. And now um, there is some talk that, look, um, maybe they're in a position where because they get England in the last game, you know, just from an emotional standpoint, what it means for Wales to play England, uh, that maybe they're in a, in, a, in a pretty good position because maybe they're better positioned to get a point off of England than the United States is. So uh, assuming they beat Iran. So that, that's kind of been the talk uh, in the British press uh, from the Welsh perspective. They're, uh, they're relieved they got a point. They think they could have won but they're also really not happy with how the match started and realized very easily they could have been down 2 or 3 nil at halftime. You know, Christian, we talk so much about our players, our national team, and, you know, mm-hmm. the golden generation that just got started for this national team that Greg Berhalter is managing right now. I mean, we see what they do match in, match out, regardless whether you watch it on linear television the streaming that's been going on through Peacock, uh, Paramount Plus, ESPN Plus, BN Sports Plus, whatever have you, um, mm. when the, you would say that, I would say maybe more than uh, half of this roster plays in Europe, and maybe a quarter of it is in England, or at least in the United Kingdom, you know, through Rangers and Celtic, uh, the Premier League championship, uh, Serie A, uh, Bundesliga, even in La Liga at a time. I mean, is, is this the most talented roster we have had maybe since 2002 before we had all these players going to Europe uh, that dominated the U.S. men's national team roster? I think without question in, in terms of individual you know, abilities in terms of individual accomplishments at the club level. This U.S. team is far more 
accomplished than any other uh, U.S. team in World Cup history. What they've done as a team, that is the huge question mark. Ten of the first 11, you know, were European-based players, uh, but they have yet to prove anything. They have yet to do anything that the previous generation has done. That, that O2 team that was, you know, not expected to do a whole lot was was brilliant and, and you know came together with the right synergy at the right time and you know it was kind of everything aligned and, and you know through the brilliance of their organization and, and you know tactical acumen at the time and a little bit of good luck they got as far as they did. But this U.S. team, you know, we forget we. Robert was saying how young it is. You know, it is one of the youngest teams we've ever had. I think it's the youngest World Cup team we've ever put out. But, you know, the inexperience showed to me a lot. Um, you know, when plan A was working fine, but the change comes in, how do you adjust? The players themselves couldn't figure that out. They tired. Um, and, and, and one thing I thought was really interesting, too, I mean, throughout qualifying, the U.S. doesn't see a lot of a team that plays in the fashion that Wales does when they, when they go direct. And, you know, they play with five at the back. And, you know, especially when they – they kind of turned up the heat in terms of being on the front foot in the second half. The U.S. is not used to that type of football. They're not used to that type of opponent. They may get some of it at their club level, but as a team in the international stage, this, this team has not experienced that together as a group. There's no substitution for that. You know, you're familiar, you need you know, stability is the cornerstone of success, is what Arsene Wenger used to say, and in the U.S. Is, is developing that. So they have to go through that as a group together. Um, and they're going to be a little wet behind the ears. And naivete is showing. And it showed, you know, from the manager, it showed on our players. It's, I think it's just part of the natural process. Uh, and you're going to see, it's going to be interesting to see how the U.S. adjusts to playing in Iran, which is going to be, you know, set similarly the same that we saw uh, from Wales, where, you know, they're going to be hard to break down. There's going to be some S-housery out there. They're going to be difficult to play against, despite the, the scoreline uh, against England. Um, so that will be fascinating to see how it comes about and, and the U.S. getting a taste of different styles for the first time as a group than they've ever encountered. Robert, I know it's only been one group stage match for the World Cup for Greg Berhalzer, but if we can look at the whole right now, or if you can't answer it right now, I understand, it's fine, but if I can throw this out to you anyway, when you compare what Greg Berhalzer has done so far to what Bruce Arena did, as U.S. men's national team manager, or what Bob Bradley did, or what even Jurgen Klinsmann did, where would you compare what Greg Berhalter has done so far to those three men? Yeah, that's a that's a big question, and I'm going to take the easy way out and say we'll see. Um, you know, having only been one match in, um, I will say this though. Um, if you're looking at specifically just World Cup performances, the, the next match is a pretty big, um, you know, pretty big test for the U.S. And I think it's a pretty big opportunity to, you know, establish your credentials in the World Cup if you're playing Bearholter. So um, you should be, like, very excited about this next match as an opportunity to, you know, show off a little bit for the international crowd. But, um, you know, I think, you know, we've highlighted throughout this show um, kind of like where we, where we think the shortcomings are and some of the strengths are of Greg Berhalter. And I think, you know, the, the, the key thing is, is can he adjust himself and his coaching style to the realities of this World Cup? I mean, every World Cup is different. There's always some sort of weird nuances, you know, with a World Cup, whether it's a location or a time of, well, time of year this year is certainly very new. But, um, you know, when you look back at some of the, the, the managers who find success, um, some of it's luck, but some of it's also this opportunity, you know, this ability to sit and look at the situation and make adjustments. And, um, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times here the the inability to make adjustments is the biggest concern for, for this U.S. team. There's certainly talent. Um, you know, is there enough talent to, to keep advancing? You know, that's certainly a debatable point. But the big question is, is can the manager and the technical staff make these adjustments? And if the answer is no, then, well, I mean, that's going to find itself out real quick here in the next match or two. So, um, I mean, the the the, the – road ahead for the U.S. is fraught, not only just with England, but with Iran after that for a number of reasons. So this is, uh, if you're Greg Berhalter and his technical team, um, you're excited about the opportunity to prove yourselves almost as much, if not more so, than the players are. And, Cardiff, obviously, Christian Pulisic gets tons of guff from uh, American fans, from the American media, from the English media playing for Chelsea uh, for what he has or has not done on a club uh, level. 
But if I can ask you this, do you think he had a better free-flowing game in this first group stage matchup against Wales than he would probably in uh, in his club side? Um, in terms of the way Wales played in the first half, yes, because he, he was – uh, he was given the freedom of, of, of movement, uh, got, got a lot of touches on the ball, was able to, 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 to use Josh Sargent uh, as, as kind of a, a hold-up player, play off of him really well. Second half, very different. Uh, Wales were winning the 50-50 ball. They were winning the, the ball further up the pitch. I think one of my uh, biggest criticisms of Pulisic through the years has been um, I feel like his positioning sense when his team is on the back foot, and I, I said this when he was at Borussia Dortmund, I've seen a little bit at Chelsea also, but it was really a problem his last season at Dortmund, uh, isn't very good, right? He's, he's often in the wrong place. He's often not making the right runs uh, at, at, in those moments when his team is not in possession or when his team is not on the front foot. And I saw a lot of that in the second half of this game. Um, that having been said, there were several opportunities in the second half, despite the fact that the Welsh dominated the second half, uh, where the U.S. were able to uh, break through that, 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 that kind of higher press and, and, and uh, Wales' intensity. And the final ball was, was lacking or the, the run was not made. And a lot of that was realistic. So it was a, a tale of two halves for him. Uh, should mention that on ITV, Roy Keane has said that uh, at Chelsea, Pulisic is – He's generally uh, bad one match, uh, decent another, and then brilliant in another. So that's three matches, right, uh, for Chelsea. So in a three-match uh, group stage, the Wales was, the fifth, was kind of the iffy game. So it's possible he's brilliant against England, probably key, and then very bad against Iran or vice versa. So he, based on that analysis from the way he plays at the club level, and, and I think he is, is right, uh, he might have a brilliant game in him uh, against England. Okay, well, so let's go ahead and preview that game, uh, guys. Uh, Christian, we'll go to you first. Where, where do you think is the most important thing right now that Berhalter needs to do to prepare for England? And, and where do you see the strengths for that matchup on Friday, Black Friday here in the States, of course? <laughs> I, I really would like to see more play at, through this right-hand side where I thought Timothy Weah found his footing early on, especially in the first 15 minutes or so. Uh, we saw Monday against Wales. Speaking on the right side, I think that's going to be problematic for for the U.S. I think Jedi Robinson and whether it be Musa, even Pulisic to an extent, is going to be facing a, a lot of Pierre Trippier, a lot of Jude Bellingham, and, and Saka, who is who was brilliant against the Iranians. The, the, a lot of the uh, attacking movement from uh, England was done, you know, on those overloads on that side. So that could be presenting a difficult test for the United States. Uh, and the U.S., I think, will, will profit from the fact that they will be playing a direct opponent that will, you know, sit back with, with five and, and try and handle a break. There's a little more space and room to operate, and I think that could suit the strengths of a Christian Pulisic. Uh, one thing I do find ironic, and it, it came to mind when Kartik was making his observation, too, Pulisic is one of those players that is almost, an, you know, an inverted – he's a wide midfield player. He's not an out-and-out winger, and – when we play with this 4-3-3 setup, you know, it's a system that's predicated on width and, and, and winger play traditionally. And, and we don't have that, you know, with, with a Christian Pulisic. He's not an out-and-out winger. He's not going to stretch and pull your defense apart. He's going to make those, you know, incisive runs. And when he finds space underneath, you know, and flip those balls in like we saw with Timothy Way, that's where he's at his best. So a change of shape might be on the cards. I really don't think it, it's going to happen. Um, it'd be something that might be contemplated. Um, of course, the shape, will sh- shape changes when you're in possession and out of possession. But, yeah, it, it, sometimes the width is, is puzzling for me. Uh, we do see some runs from Robinson and, of course, Jorginho Dest when he's included on that right inside to, to provide a lot of that width and make those overlaps over Pulisic. But, you know, in terms of that front third, you don't see that in, in, in this 4-3-3 system, which is a little strange, a little bit of a caveat than a, a traditional uh, 4-3-3 setup. So, um, but with space, I think the U.S. will have more room to operate. It can suit their strength because they do have the athleticism. Um, it's going to be a massive game, massive game for Tyler Adams, who I thought was very good uh, against the Welsh. Uh, and he's going to get stuck in. He's going to have to take charge. He's going to uh, have his hands full. Uh, you know, Sterling was on form. He continues his great form at the international level. Uh, talk about Saka, how, how brilliant he's been. He's really finding his feet at the right time. And, and Jude Bellingham is 
is turning into a, a midfielder of the next generation for this English team. Is what a talent. So. Uh, the midfield uh, matchups, this, this MMA, whatever you want to call it, is going to be up for it uh, because they really will have their hands full. And then you throw in the likes of a, of a Harry Kane who will drop in deep and play the role of facilitator like we saw in large stretches. Hard to believe that England scores six and Harry Kane doesn't get one of them. <laughs> yeah, he did play a significant role in the English buildup. Uh, I was very impressed with the English. Uh, and, and one thing that we, we haven't addressed like also to set pieces. Uh, you know, it's, it was made – much was made of it during the in-game commentary and some of it, that the U.S. will have to be on it, really have to be on it defensively. It's got to be better marking. I thought there were a series of, of three headers from the Welsh that were unpunished. Um, but with Harry Maguire up there, who's one of the best in the air, uh, and then John Stone's able to play out. But chiefly Maguire in, in good service, you know, whether it be from Shaw and Trippier, it's, it's going to be something that the U.S. really has to be better in, in defending because, uh, you know, England has made that one of their staples of their attack. And Robert, just to throw this out, throw this at you about you know for the starting eleven for the U.S. Um, I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't have a problem with Pulisic playing wide to the left uh, in the top three in the four-three-three formation that Burhalter has done, but and I don't mind Sargent being in the middle either. But I think for this one, and I really think in my mind, if we're really going to have a solid attacking function. Uh, England on their heels in this one. Would you move Pulisic centrally up top and maybe have Brendan Aronson starting the match on the left by keeping Weah on the right? Yeah, that's that's, that's a good question. Um, and um, you know, I would I would answer your question in a slightly different way, which is I would be curious to see Christian Pulisic move around a little bit more in this match. So maybe mm-hmm. if you're going to start him centrally, see if he'll move out to the, you know, drift wide or basically find a, find space where he can, um, you know, be productive and be most um, useful for the United States. Um, I think that's the big thing. I'll, I'll defer a lot of the, the tactical talk to my colleagues here who are much smarter in this than I am. But I think, I think going back to our earlier point, you know, we want to make sure that Pulisic is move around. Um, throughout this match, he's going to need to move to find space. And is Greg Brolzer going to be able to, you know, give him the freedom to kind of move around and still direct him. Um, because, you know, just to touch on this match from a, a larger perspective for me, um, this match is terrifying for a number of reasons. Most of all, that if you're England and looking at this match, um, if you can get the three points for this match, I would much rather have six. If I'm looking at this match and getting six points heading into the Wales match, I'm feeling good because I do not want to worry about having to get a result with Wales. Not necess- not because, you know, Wales is at an equal quality. They're not. Um, but any emotional impact um, of a last game of the group stage versus, you know, uh, your your fellow countrymen is not, uh, and I know they don't think of themselves necessarily that way, is, is not something I want to do. I want to take care of business in this match. And so uh, knowing that England's going to be looking to just – get the three points from this and rotate players for the final match. Um, that scares me a little bit about this match because we're not going to see an England that's um, down like we did in the first half of the Wales match. This is going to be an England team that's uh, up for this game. And Cardick, you know, your thoughts about England right now, um, obviously to me, Harry Kane, obviously there's been some reports. He, he suffered an injury in the first match against Iran is he fit enough to be into this one? What do you think is going to happen with Southgate running this uh, English squad against the U.S.? And at the same time, on the U.S. end of things, if Tyler Adams is going to be marking Harry Kane in the U.S.'s area, I have to go back to the match between Leeds and Tottenham where you know Tyler Adams, even though he tried to position himself to defend against Harry Kane. Kane was able to muscle him off a bit and get that goal, even though I, I still felt that shouldn't have been a goal in the first place for Tottenham because I thought Messele was fouled uh, in, his, in his little six-yard box uh, in the net and was shoved into the net. I thought that, should, that goal should not have counted, but outside of that, I, I just want to see Tyler Adams, if he is going to be marking Harry Kane, do a better job on the national level than what he did in the Premier League matchup uh, a week or two ago. Yeah, I mean, if uh, if uh, Kane plays 
that creates a whole set of challenges. He, he's as good in the world as any number nine in linking up. A lot of what Harry Kane does, uh, besides score goals, is his understanding, his, uh, his ability to kind of hold the ball, play a ball pass to Raheem Sterling. Uh, Bakaya Saka has really come on both for Arsenal and for, the, uh, and for England in the last 18 months. So uh, very, very dangerous. If he doesn't play, I'm assuming it'll be Callum Wilson, um, who gives you another set of challenges, right? He's a player uh, that can drift into wide areas. He's a player that uh, I've seen uh, previously at Bournemouth when he played for Eddie Howe, and I was playing for Eddie Howe again at Newcastle. Uh, but when he played at Bournemouth in particular, could drift into midfield and link up and have uh, runners who are coming from wide positions make diagonal runs in behind him, and he would play a pass. So this creates a number of challenges for the U.S. defense. Uh, Christian mentioned how good Maguire is in the air. And, and, and another point on Harry Maguire is how good he is defensively in the air. Uh, his last season at Leicester, before he moved to Manchester United, uh, they didn't concede a single goal from a corner kick all season because of how good Harry Maguire is defensively in the air. So if the U.S. is looking for a smash and grab, which may come down to a set piece, uh, because we're assuming the U.S. will have less of the ball in this match, maybe not as many chances in the run of play, um, Maguire, Stones, they're going to be big factors. I think uh, something the U.S. has to be very, very conscious of is, uh, is the ability of Trippier to get forward and play across um, into the area. Uh, his set-piece taking ability, obviously no Kyle Walker for England, so that's a bit of a break for the United States. But there's just so much danger in this matchup. The one thing I do like about facing England is I think – England's midfield does not have uh, that sort of ball winner or destroyer you used to associate with England. So, um, or, or even kind of the really deep-lying playmaker. Declan Rice is not really a number six. Uh, Bellingham is more of a box-to-box guy. Calvin Phillips, who, who could have played that role, sort of played that role in the Euros, is injured. Uh, he, he's not at the World Cup. So, uh, they don't really have that guy, which gives the U.S.'s three-man midfield an opportunity maybe to assert some control over the match. But I think outside of that midfield situation, and I, and I should say, I, I, Bellingham and Rice are elite players. I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying that they don't have the kind of cover uh, in midfield, uh, England doesn't, that they do in, at the fullback position, even with Walker injured, at, at the wide positions, up top. They have stacks in these areas. In fact, uh, Southgate's dilemma is who to play, right? He has so many top players at his disposal. But that might be one place for the U.S., which gets back to your question, Daniel. Tyler Adams very much will be the key to this match because he's the guy who's going to have to dictate tempo and dictate play in that midfield and probably have to keep an eye on Bellingham's um, runs because we've seen Bellingham this season for Borussia Dortmund get even better with these deep runs from midfield. He's kind of ghosted Frank Lampard-like runs, like what we used to see from Lampard for both England and for Chelsea. And um, actually got a goal. He got a goal that way against uh, Iran in the first match. So uh, I think Adams might be the key uh, both ways, offensively and defensively for the United States. I agree with you there, Cardick. And you know what, gentlemen, this is going to be an interesting time. And uh... This coming Friday, Thanksgiving Friday, Black Friday, as we all love to call it here, and it's more due to shopping prices and special giveaways. Unfortunately, uh, I have no giveaway to, ha- to hand out. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, this is uh, the third. This will be the third time in the history between the United States and England that they will be facing each other in a World Cup group stage match. We can't forget what happened in 1950. Back in Brazil, in Belo Horizonte, 1-0. South Africa in 2010, the 1-1 draw. And Rob Green, of course, with the howler, uh, helped the U.S. get that equalizer. And uh, this is a very big moment now because either we the, this current squad for our side either continues it or England finally gets that opportunity to say, you know, uh, they, they've beaten one of the... Uh, the jinxes that they have uh, have handled for such a long period of time. But, you know, we'll get to that on Friday when the match is over, and that will be seen live 2 o'clock Eastern, um, 11 o'clock in the morning Pacific, as we get ready for the U.S. taking on the English 
on Fox for this 2022 FIFA World Cup. I want to thank again Christian Miles. I want to thank Robert Hay and Carter Krishnar for joining me today. Uh, they'll be back with me on Friday for a post game uh, after the U.S. faces England in this World Cup group stage match. Gentlemen, thank you again for joining me and have a good afternoon. Enjoy the holidays. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. And talk to you guys again on Friday. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. All right, and this is Daniel Feuerstein. Once again, thank you for joining us today here on the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. As always, please enjoy your football and talk to you guys on Friday. Take care so long, and bye-bye for now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.